My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. As per usual, I'm your host, Jamie Keach, and today I had the opportunity to sit down with none other than Warren Irwin. Now, Warren is the founder, the president, and the chief investment officer of Rosso Asset Management. It is a hedge fund based in Toronto, Canada, and it's primarily focused on the metals, mining, and energy industry. What makes Rosso so interesting is that in 2016, it was the top performing hedge fund in the world. This year, they've been around for 20 years. They've had a 13.67 average annual compounded rate of return uh, since their inception. And so that actually equates to if you invested with Warren when he started Rosso, you would have had 13 times your money right now. And that's through bull markets and bear markets and everything in between in the mining industry. Now, Warren has a reputation for being outspoken, for being opinionated, uh, for putting his money where his mouth is. And we get into all of that in today's podcast. We talk about how he chooses investments, how he manages risks, um, how he operates in frontier countries. We talk about um, corruption in the mining industry. We talk about incompetence in the mining industry. We talk about ways that investors can better manage their money to ensure longevity in this space in the long term. And we talk about the pitfalls that many, many people fall into. This was a conversation that I've been looking forward to for some time now. Uh, I reached out to Warren not so uh, long ago based on recommendations from people I know in the space, but also based on a lot of emails that I received from people that had heard previous podcasts, that had heard about Irwin, and really wanted to hear his perspective on the things that we talk about in the Resource Insider podcast. For me, it was great to sit down with someone who's been doing this for decades and learn more about his investment strategy and sort of really the tricks of the trade employed by someone that has really taken the time to master his craft. So we talk a bit about uh, Warren's experience with Briex, both going long and going short. We talk about other scams in the mining industry, and we talk about making big bets um, and having big wins and also having losses. Uh, this is going to be a great episode for Anyone who's managing their own money and is looking at investing in the mining space, you're going to hear a lot of things that I think is going to help you be a better investor and better understand how this space works, and it has certainly added value to my life already. So without further ado, let me please introduce Warren Irwin, the Chief Investment Officer and President of Rosso Asset Management. Warren, welcome to the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me, Jamie. So I'm sitting in my living room right now in Vancouver. Uh, I know you spend most of your time working in Toronto, but where are you at the moment? 
Uh, I'm in uh, I'm in Kelowna right now. Uh, I spend about uh, a third of my time in Kelowna, a third of my time in Toronto, a third of my time traveling, seeing uh, new mining projects. And you know, when you're in Toronto, you are the head of Rosso Asset Management, or I guess when you're anywhere, you guys are based downtown. What does um, Rosso Asset Management do, and what is your role there for people who have never come across Rosso before or Warren Irwin? Okay, well, we uh, just quick history of us. Uh, I started Rosso a little over 20 years ago, following uh, doing the exact same thing at Deutsche Bank Canada. I was head of I was director of special investments for Deutsche Bank Canada, and I decided it was time to get out on my own. So for the past uh, 20 plus years, I've been uh, running uh, Rosso. I'm the president and chief investment officer. So I'm, I'm uh, responsible for all our investment um, uh, decisions made over the past uh, 20 plus years. Okay. And so I think it'd be great um, if a lot of our listeners are going to be retail investors, as well as people working in the mining space, geologists, engineers, accountants, um, many will know what the role of hedge funds uh, play in this sector, but could we talk a little bit about what what a hedge fund does specifically in the mining space and, and the role that they fill in the industry? Yeah, well, in, certainly in our case, I, I tell you what we do. Uh, there have been other hedge funds in the, in the mining space. A lot of them got blown up the last uh, down cycle. As you know, there was four to five years of just negative returns year after year after year. So there aren't many survivors left um, I think I'm one of the few, uh, if, if any, really left in the sector. Uh, it was really tough downturn. So what running it under a hedge fund structure really helps us with is that we're able to do two things. We're able to stay reasonably small and nimble, and we're able to short. So in instances where we think um, things have gotten a little carried away, especially with the big liquid names, we're able to go short. We're also able to use leverage. And um, we're also able to just go straight long also. So we have a tremendous amount of flexibility in the sector, which is very, very useful versus just being a long only fund. Now, from a company's perspective, and, and I think about this a lot, you know, how essential is it to have a bigger institutional investor such as a hedge fund uh, supporting the company? Now, this can, I mean, this will vary at different stages, but I know a lot of your focus is on the expiration stage assets. I, uh, I'd like to talk a bit about that later. But, you know, I always wonder, you know, you see companies that are made up of primarily retail investors, others that are largely institutional. Do you think it's essential to have a fund or some other big institutional backer backing these stories, especially expiration stories that might require significant rounds of raises and, and capital raising? Well, I found the large institutions really don't provide uh, early stage financing for this type of stuff. So you really do need to re- rely on, uh, on retail investors who have uh, a, a bit more risk tolerance. Also uh, where we fit in and, and some hedge funds fit in is that we're able to take a considerably higher degree of risk than a lot of the bigger institutions. Bigger institutions often jump in uh, a little bit later. For instance, if you, if you look at uh, uh, two recent examples that we've been involved in next gen, uh, we jumped in early, well before any big institutions, and we uh, gave uh, NextGen the cash they needed to do to drill out their initial discovery. So we were there kind of uh, almost like an advanced echelon before the big institutions were there. And now that uh, 
they've been successful and been able to grow the company. We've had big institutions like Li Kai-shing step up and, and all the big, the big name uh, uh, backers out of the Canada and the U.S. Same with Solgold. Um, we had financed them in the early days when they were really desperate for cash. They'd already made it this discovery, but a lot of people viewed them as too risky. So we were able to go in there and give them a bunch of cash and allow them to uh, grow the resource base to the point now where they have a number of big institutions that have been able to step up and uh, uh, step up with that investment. So we're almost like the stopgap. Uh, we're just there before the institutions and, and we provide the capital they need to, uh, to drill out the deposit to the point where the bigger institutions get a little bit more comfortable to step in. So what, what you, you know, you said you're a smaller team. What does your team look like? Is that, is it primarily finance investing people? Is it a team of technical experts? How do you, you know, how do you guys get the comfort to make these earlier bets before a lot of people are willing to, to come in on these sort of projects and these deals? Yeah, I've done this. The first thing is uh, when you take a look at some of the bigger institutions that are, you know, the, the guys who've got running money have not got the experience we have at Rosso. I've been doing this just, just at Rosso for over 20 years, plus I did it at Deutsche Bank, plus, um, you know, so I've done it for a very, very long time. I grew up as a kid in a mining town in Timmins. I spent four years there as a kid. So I got a flavor for mining very, very early. So I've been doing this a very, very, very long time. And the reason the big institutions sometimes cannot get that level of comfort is, you know, they'll have a... Uh, they'll have somebody running their fund that might be, you know, five or six years out of MBA school with, without the kind of background experience, especially the real world experience that, that we have at Rosso. So um, for, for that reason, we feel quite comfortable in taking additional risk. Uh, as far as our team, uh, I have three other people working with me. They're uh, largely uh, covering uh, more of the operational issues of the company and uh, on the investment side, I'm the primary decision maker. Uh, some of the resources I lean upon is I have a tremendous contact base throughout the industry. Uh, I know experts in pretty much all the, the key fields. And when we do need heavy-duty expertise, for instance, uh, when we uh, did the initial work on NextGen, I wanted to make sure that we we're able to mine the deposit and how we'd go about mining it, an idea of the capital cost, the complexity of it. Um, so what we're, I was able to do is I, uh, I engaged an engineer who'd built uh, underground uranium mines before, specifically for that reason. I also rely, for instance, if we're, we're involved in copper porphyries, we're involved in nickel sulfides. I, I often have uh, longstanding relationships with some very, very smart people in those areas, and I, uh, I engage them when, when necessary to provide me the, the very much needed expertise on, on that very, very specific sector because... You know, people ask me, so why don't you have a geologist on staff? And my answer to that is I, I find uh, things are so specialized these days in, uh, in exploration that when I want to deal with somebody, I want to deal with the expert in the field. So uh, another example is we were dealing with FNX Mining some years ago with their big discovery, the footwall discovery in Sudbury. Well, when I got involved in that, I, I hired the world's foremost um, footwall expert to help me understand footwall deposits and how, uh, and how they work. And that gave us a tremendous edge over everybody else. So, I mean, that all makes sense to me. Um, I guess something I'd be wondering about is if you were to bring on someone at Rosso that would eventually replace your role uh, in the fullness of time as the fund manager and making the leading the investment decisions, what kind of characteristics would you look for in someone who could sort of fill that role of the, of the, 
of the head of making those decisions and bring in the sort of people necessary, even on a part-time basis to help uh, provide the technical detail and the, and the in-depth analysis. What, is there certain characteristics you look for someone that makes a good investor, uh, I guess in general, but then specifically for the mining sector and, and the specific challenges we see here? Yeah, the mining sector is a tremendously difficult uh, one to invest in. So the person really needs to have a lot of tenacity and a lot of desire to to really roll up their sleeves and get involved in the, in the mining business. And some of the places you'll have to travel to are pretty awful. And uh, like I remember the first trip into the Saul Gold camp, uh, you know, I'm just, <laughs> it wasn't a pleasant place to stay, I assure you. I was also the first on the ground with the uh, Fruit of the Norte discovery in Ecuador. And there were no roads in. We choppered in and I slept in a tent for a couple of nights. And some of the conditions are pretty rough. Some of the food's pretty crappy. And so you can't be a princess, that's for sure. And you need a strong level of tenacity. And sometimes uh, uh, that, that's very, very important. And you need to, in the mining business, there's a lot of, a lot of lying, a lot of deceit. Uh, a lot of people are trying to, to say and do whatever they can to get the money out of you as an investor. And uh, the, the truth is often lost. So you need a strong uh, uh, ability to, to know who's lying to you and who isn't and uh, being able to fact check everything you're being told find out uh, what, what is real and what isn't. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult business to invest because of that reason. What is it? You, you mentioned that you, you came from Timmins, which uh, for those non-Canadians listening is a, a very big and very historic mining center in Ontario. Is there anything, but you went through a mathematics degree, a business degree, you worked in a more traditional finance role. Is there something that brought you back to the mining industry in particular when you probably could have gone in any direction. Yeah, I know it's kind of interesting. I was working at, uh, uh, at, uh, I believe it was Deutsche Bank or might've been Scotia before that. And, uh, I had some uh, idiot friends of mine get involved in this, um, this bit of a pump and dump gold scam. We didn't know it at the time. So they, they asked me if I knew anything about it. So I said, well, I don't, so let's jump on a plane and do it. So I jumped on a plane and, and, uh, went in and did a, quick analysis of this gold uh, play they were involved in in Northern British Columbia. And um, that really got me back into the business and I started valuing them. And then the one that really got me into the gold business again was, uh, was Briex because I'd spent follow MBA school and I just finished my CFA also. So I'd spent um, a few months traveling in Southeast Asia. I spent a significant amount of time in Indonesia. So Mm -hmm. interesting is when the whole Briex thing happened, it was very unique for me because I just spent a fair amount of time, uh, many, many weeks in Indonesia, getting to know the country. Uh, I had a good friend there who, who showed me around. And uh, so I had a, I just come off valuing gold properties with my other friends who were involved in the scam up in Northern BC. Plus I was just involved. I was just in Indonesia. So when, when Briex happened, it provided a very unique opportunity for me to roll up my sleeves and, and get involved again in that gold situation, which I, had unique uh, insights into the country itself uh, where a lot of people didn't at the time. You know, I've listened to past interviews of yourself where you talk about uh, your role in first investing in and then shorting Briex. Uh, you talk about your role in Indonesia and, you know, an interview you did with a gentleman named Bill Powers was really excellent on that. And I'm going to not focus too much on that, this, on the, on that in this conversation and put that in the, the notes for other people to listen to. But something I really took away from listening to that 
was that you really seem to have a knack for developing a sort of intelligence network on the ground of people that are close to projects uh, and familiar with the country and familiar with the communities and familiar with the geology. You know, how, I guess my question is, how essential is that, do you think, for a really successful mining investor? And how often do you see people actually doing that as opposed to just simply relying on a standard desktop study and then two days on site and staying in the Hilton and then back home? Yeah, no, that's, I think if it's one thing that we, and the reason we're still in business and a lot of people aren't is because we do that. And, uh, you know, it's quite easy to sit in Toronto and, and read research reports and listen to analysts and that sort of thing. And uh, it's a good way to get your uh, ass handed to you. So you're exactly right. We, we rely whenever we can on a lot of local intelligence. Uh, for instance, uh, when I was in, uh, in Busang in Indonesia, the, the Briex property, one of the things I looked for were the local school. And the locals were building their homes right up next to the site, so it was clear that the locals were fooled. You just need to understand who's been fooled, who's in on the scam, who isn't in on the scam, and uh, and what's real and what isn't. Uh, there are a number of protests happening around uh, the Fruit of the Norte discovery in uh, in Ecuador, and I hired a reporter who I'd been in touch with, and it was clear he was very very knowledgeable. So I had him uh, to go to go to these. Uh, um, protesters and trying to understand what was going on. And it was clear to him after a while that uh, the protests were being organized by a criminal element that were hired by some uh, local politicians just outside the original area of influence. And uh, they were basically creating, um, creating controversy because they wanted to share in the economic benefits from Fruto del Norte. And so that's the type of intelligence on the ground that, uh, I'd like to get. In fact, the life of the, the reporter was threatened as part of that process. And there was a lot of other rather nefarious things that they were up to. But you run into this quite a bit. Um, you'll find that I, I found anyways that uh, a lot of the, the uh, environmental groups involved in some of these anti-mine protests, when you dig deep is to find out who's funding them, you'll find uh, it's, uh, it's rare. They're rarely doing it for the environment uh, at all. And it, there's always economic interests uh, behind it. And there's often quite a bit of uh, criminal activity behind it also. You know, how often, I think it's, this is an important discussion. How often do these things happen? Uh, you know, when you're working in frontier markets and developing countries, uh, is this, is this the exception or the norm where you're seeing these somewhat nefarious elements at play, whether it be from local politicians or competing businesses or even within potentially the company you're looking at? Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. We're seeing it firsthand here in Canada with the blocking of the pipeline from Alberta to the coast to sell uh, our heavy oil to the Chinese. Uh, it's, without too much research, you pretty much know that uh, that's being funded by American interests with the backing of not only business, but also the U.S. government. Um, they're basically uh, exploiting Canada by funding environmental groups that will block a pipeline. So basically, we're only left to sell our, our oil to the U.S. So we're seeing that firsthand in, you know, in the front page of the Canadian paper every day. Mm-hmm. Where you've got elements uh, corruptly in, corrupting and influencing Canadian politics and NGOs and um, it's happening every day here in Canada, this exact same thing. So 
we really can't say that, you know, it happens in Ecuador, but it doesn't happen in Canada because it's happening today. It's costing Canadians hundreds and millions of dollars every day. And uh, because this foreign lobbying, uh, arguably uh, quite Machiavellian lobbying, lobbying. So it happens everywhere. It happens all the time. Would you say, though, that most people view the world the way you do and are aware of this sort of thing going on? Or do you think, I mean, I, I would think a lot of people sort of turn a blind eye to this, whether looking at what's going on in Canada or evaluating a mining project in a remote jurisdiction. Yeah, you know, you have to, uh, it's, uh, it's one of those things you, you need to understand what's really, really going on in politics uh, of the place and compare what the politics say, politicians say with what really is going on in a country. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's not easy. And, uh, I'm, I'm routinely doing this every day. We just got pitched a, uh, a really good gold property in a country in, uh, in Eastern Europe. And right now we're going through to trying to understand to what extent the company's, the country's corrupt. We know the com- country is corrupt, but to what extent that's going to impact us. And, uh, the, the, the really unique thing I find with respect to mining and why mining is very, very tough is, uh, I'm involved in oil and gas, and when we go into a country that is, um, uh, let's say, reasonably sketchy, and you'll notice oil companies are in much more sketchier countries than, than mining companies in general. Mm-hmm. Because if you're dealing in a country, you could drill a hole, you'll have it on pipe, and you'll have that oil on a ship within a very short period of time. Whereas when you're dealing with a mine, you're looking at, well, you know, two, three years of planning, environmental studies, and then another three years to get it built. So you're looking maybe six, seven years out before the mine's even built and you still haven't received any, any revenue. So the, um, and you know, if you're looking for another, let's say three year payback, you're looking at almost 10 years before you, you, uh, you get your money back, let alone start making some return on your original capital. So you need to be much more cautious on the mining business than you can, than you need to be in the oil business So the oil. Like I said, in some instances, you're even dealing in a corrupt country, but you're dealing uh, with an offshore oil platform, so you don't have have issues, uh, as many issues. And if you are dealing on land, often you can get the drill hole in and the pipeline producing uh, oil quick enough, you'll get your capital back reasonably quickly, so you're able to take a bit more political risk than you could with a mine. So keeping that in mind, what stage of the mining life cycle do you like to participate in so that you're able to get exposure to, uh, you know, great assets in foreign jurisdictions, but, you know, minimize the risk of these uh, development projects and operating projects. Is that, does that lead you to a focus on exploration and discovery? Yeah. Well, well, my view generally is I don't like to own a development project and I don't like to own a producing asset. Uh, I, I like to get in there before that. And in order to do that, what I need to do is I need to make sure that I, I get involved in a world-class asset that will get bought by a major. So the major can handle the development issues and the, the production issues. The majors are often much more in a much better position to, to, to deal with many of those issues because they do it on a global basis. Um, also, I, I try never to get involved with the junior, whoever says they're ever going to put anything into production because um, uh, that's not what I want to get involved in. Juniors don't know what they're doing generally uh, in, in that front. So my view is if I get involved in a project, I want it to be world-class. I want it to be world-class enough that it will get taken out by a major. And then I, then I recycle that cash back into other, other situations in the exploration front. And what I like to do is on the exploration is I like to invest in situations where 
there, there is an indication that there is something uh, that could be building. Um, and uh, so I'd like to see it have been de-risked de a fair amount. For me to get involved in a grassroots situation, there needs to be a very, very compelling reason for it. And then as, as projects progress, uh, I can start getting a sense of um, whether they have a discovery or not. And um, so I get involved in various degrees, less or so in the grassroots, but as they're getting closer to a discovery or shortly after a new discovery, that's really when I like to really assess things and, and really roll up my sleeves and get involved. And I don't mind paying a little bit extra money uh, to get involved once a discovery has been made. Because a lot of times what happens is when a discovery is made, it takes some time before the rest of the market figures it out. So the ideal situation for me is to be following a company, to, to watch what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, believing in the management, the project, the prospectivity, and then they start making discoveries. And then uh, I feel that's a pretty good time to get involved. So how do you define a discovery? Is this, you know, uh, promising drill intercepts? Is this uh, a resource? Where do you guys draw the line for, for yourselves? Yeah, the resource stage is way too late for me to get involved. Mm -hmm. People say I have a 43-101, I go, it's generally too late. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, when we got involved in Noron, Noron pulled a really good hole out of the discovery of a nickel sulfide pod in, in the, uh, the Ring of Fire in northern Ontario. So we jumped in and got involved heavily there. Um, and that was sort of our view uh, on a discovery. But uh, what, what disappointed me over time was that discovery wasn't followed up with additional pods being found. And once we got our, our nickel expert involved, I think we understand why the additional pods weren't found. So that's sort of where I jumped in and uh, we lost a bunch of money on it for sure. But we jump in following, uh, following a discovery like that, hoping that it'll actually start to grow. Other instances where we've jumped in and it's turned out to grow into something pretty magnificent was with Fruta del Norte with Aurelian. Yep. When we jumped in, they pulled, I, I recollect uh, the hole was about 110 meters to 10 grams. We jumped in with both feet, and fortunately, that turned into a very, very large deposit, and that's being developed by Lundin Gold right now. And uh, that's happened in a number of instances. Same with uh, when we got involved in Sol Gold, uh, there were some amazing discovery holes, and we jumped in, and sure enough, it turned out to be, uh, looks like the three to four billion ton um, discovery there in, in, in Ecuador. It's going to be pretty special, too. And same with NextGen, uh, they started pulling some interesting holes. And fortunately, they were able to grow it. But it doesn't always happen after it is a good discovery hole. And what you need to watch, very investors really need to be cautious about this. In a lot of instances, and we don't fall for it too often, but uh, you'll get a junior that will come out and uh, right off the bat, they'll pull an amazing hole. And what you need to really, really watch that is find out whether it's been drilled before. Because what sometimes happens is there are these retread properties that have had good intersections, but haven't been able to grow. And if you get a, you get a shysty promoter and there's lots of them out there, they'll redrill that hole knowing they're going to get great results, hoping their stock will run so they can get off some paper or raise money at higher prices. So you have to very, watch that very, very closely. A lot of the times when I look at a new, dis, a big discovery hole, I'll phone up uh, people I know that have either worked the property, worked the region and, Quite more often than not, they'll tell me, "Oh yeah, they they're just twinning the hole that was drilled back in the nineteen you know nineteen eighty five by right, right. Junior, and uh, they're trying to get their stock up and raise a ton of money." So that's the the real risk there, and that's uh, one of the things I look for. So a few weeks ago on the show, we talked to uh, Willem Middlecomp from the Commodity Discovery Fund in Amsterdam, 
And he mentioned that something he likes when looking for discoveries is he'll often see that uh, what he considers a true discovery, um, he sees the stock run up a bit before before the drill results are released. And, you know, his comment was that, you know, these true discoveries, these really exciting holes, it's almost impossible for companies to keep them entirely quiet. Uh, you know, drillers talk or people on the ground or whomever. And that he's often seen, uh, you know, buying on the market in advance of that. And to him, you know, although he's getting in at a higher price than he might like, he sees that as an indicator of potential that this might actually be real and that this is something that's genuine. Oh, it's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I've, you know, but I've also seen uh, some top quality juniors that absolutely have a hundred percent control over their news flow, and nothing happens until the result comes out. So uh, that that situation uh, Willem is talking about is indeed it does indeed happen. It's happening a little bit less in the people I follow. It generally doesn't happen with them because I try not to f- follow people who are unethical enough or don't have such controls in their data that to let that, that information out. Um, right. So, so that kind of leads me to my next question. Do you, you know, the, the work you're talking about obviously requires a tremendous amount of research and time and energy. What is the size of your portfolio at any given time? Are you only in two or three names? Are you in dozens? How do, how do you approach building a portfolio of, of investments? Yeah, I, uh, there's a couple of schools of thought there. Um, I remember the, uh, the old pine tree capital view, which was uh, invest uh, in a lot of the deals, a lot of, and a number of other people took that approach. And I, I think it's been proven out that that approach is not the ideal one to take. So I, um, I try and take a much more concentrated bet. So I try and stay under 20 names mm-hmm. and they'll be, Various degrees. Like right now, I'm funding an early stage diamond project, which is not, which has found diamonds, but not of economic quantities quite yet. I'm funding an early stage zinc project, which I think will, will be a discovery. And then I'm funding right along at various stages uh, along the way. And then I've got a group that I, I'm holding out now, almost like a harvest group. For instance, uh, Next Gen has Next Gen's in the harvest mode. It's going to get bought out here at some point. Same with uh, Cornerstone, which is a partner with Saul Gold in the big uh, Cascabel discovery. That'll get bought out here over the next uh, year or so. And then also with Colonial Coal, Metallurgical Coal's deal in Northern British Columbia. That's It's already drilled out the resource. They're not going to be drilling anymore. It'll get bought out. So I have a various uh, mining companies at different stages of uh, maturity from the early stage stuff to the stuff that I'm trying to sell. So... Um, uh, I try and keep the names under 20 and I find they're in those three categories. Do you have a preference for how you guys are typically positioning yourself? Are you buying the stock on the market? Are you participating in placements? Uh, you know, what is the strategy there? You know, it's, you have to be flexible on that. Um, I remember when I first started in the business, uh, you know, uh, the guys wouldn't let me participate in, in placements. So I had, to, <laughs> I had to go into the market. I wasn't, I wasn't part of the the crew, shall we say. <laughs> the inside club, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. so you, you know the type where, oh, yeah, sorry, Warren, uh, that 10 million placement got picked off and you, you didn't get any, and good luck out there in the market. So uh, I think over, over the last few decades, now that I've proven to be a good, solid, decent shareholder to have, um, I'm actually getting called in some of those deals. So increasingly, I do that. But there, there are instances, uh, for instance, right now with Colonial Coal, um, they have enough money. And so if I want to buy any more, I have to go in the market. 
And um, that's, that's true with a number of them. For instance, I want to increase my uh, position in next gen. I'd have to step into the market to buy it because they're sitting on loads of cash. So that's, uh, so I do a bit of both. I do whatever works for me at the time. And um, uh, I do prefer uh, getting involved in a placement because I know that that money gets put to work and gets put to work in the ground. But a lot mm-hmm. of times, uh, especially after a good discovery, these companies are well financed, fully financed. So then you just have to go in the market and pick up your paper. Yes, totally. Okay. So I want to talk about um, what I think is kind of often portrayed as a false dichotomy in the space is that you hear a lot of people discussing the importance of backing these all-star teams, teams that have done it before teams that are often successful. Um, Often I, I kind of think of this as a good way for retail investors to help make safer bets when they might not have the background or the technical ability to evaluate an asset. Uh, that being said, even good teams get it wrong most of the time, probably. So how do you guys balance, you know, you mentioned you follow great teams that are in control of their project and not corrupt, but you also need to find great assets. Is there, do you have a view of where, what is most important or is it really just, you need both? Yeah, it's interesting. What, well, here's the thing about, you know, backing superstars. I find the problem with backing superstars is the, you can never get in cheaply and the superstars are fully, uh, you know, they've got a lot of money themselves and they're all, they've got a really good uh, posse around them that have loaded themselves up and they've played every single trick in the book to get the stock up as high as they can. So you'll find that it's tough to make a ton of money with them because the stocks are already expensive. You're looking at maybe a 50 million market cap for something that hasn't even made a discovery yet. So it's really difficult to make any significant dough with teams like that. So I don't necessarily like backing the dream teams. I like backing the, the up and comers. Uh, like when I backed uh, Lee Courier from, from uh, next gen, this is really his, uh, he was an up-and-comer. He's had some good good success in the past, but no real massive new discoveries under his belt. The other reason, too, I like backing the good, decent, solid up-and-comers a little bit more than the superstars is there's nothing worse than backing a superstar right after a big win because everybody, the win, the win is fresh in their minds. A lot of people made a pile of money, and you'll see a lot of that money recycled back into the, the, with the, the superstar in his next deal. And the odds of getting back-to-back wins, even by a superstar, are so remote. Um, you know, if, if you start working it mathematically, let's say you had a, a one-in-whatever uh, chance of making the success in the first place, well, you square that, and that'll be the odds of having a follow-up success after the first success, right? So if you're looking at a one-in-a-hundred chance of the first success, well, it's one-in-a-hundred times one-in-a-hundred, so you're looking at, you know, one-in-ten-thousand chance, right? So um, the odds of a back-to-back success is so remote. That's one of the reasons, too, I don't like backing the superstars. And, uh, I've, you know, the reason I know this, I've I've done this myself. I've backed superstars after a big discovery, and I've been vaporized almost all my money in the next deal. uh, These are hard-learned lessons. You could uh, could learn from me or learn them yourselves. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you look for when you're trying to identify the up-and-comers? I mean, is there a characteristic trait? Is there uh, a way they approach problems? What, how, how, do you, how does someone identify them? 
Well, what I love about the up-and-comers is they're the guys who've been, uh, let's say, the unsung heroes sometimes in, in previous previous discoveries where, you know, they may have done all the work and they, they're they part of the big discovery, so they know the feel and the excitement of a big discovery or they were involved with some really good exploration work in the past that maybe didn't turn out, but you know they're they're smart, they've got the skills, they're hungry, they'll make the sacrifice they need to make a discovery, but they haven't had the big win yet. They're not fat and happy. They haven't got, uh, you know, the trappings of wealth yet, but they've been through a few of these things where they've seen people make a lot of money and they may have been closely associated with them, but um, they've been very, very smart, but they just missed that one point of making a ton of money. So uh, I'm backing one management team right now, which is pretty much the same story. They've were worked at a major for a number of years. We're part of the discovery team on over, over decades of a number of uh, good discoveries for the majors, but they never made any money. Now they're out on their own and they're, they're determined to use every ounce of strength in their body and every ounce of knowledge they have. And they've learned from the majors to get out there and, and make a discovery that will benefit them economically. So you have these people who have both the skill set and then also probably at this point, an incredible amount of drive to, to get this done. Especially when you see someone who's spent whatever it might be 25 years with the majors and they're starting to think about retirement and maybe they don't have quite the pension that they thought they would. And they're, they're pretty determined to, to find something. Uh, that is exactly the, the, the type of guy I like the back versus the other, other people like the back, you know, the superstar guy who just found something and, uh, uh, th- that's, that's what I want to do. And when, and when you're an early investor too, with these guys, the rest of the market doesn't know about them. So you're able to get in quite inexpensively too. And, uh, I just love backing these guys and they're, they're oftentimes they're a little unsophisticated when it comes to finance too. So uh, I, I sometimes help whenever I can to put them in touch with, with good people to raise the money, good people to, to handle other legals for them. And I try and give them a little bit of assistance and, um, through that process, you understand um, how sharp these guys are and how determined they are. And, uh, and that gives you a level of confidence. So when they do another financing, you know, you've seen these guys grow from being the typical big country, big company geo to, uh, to a, an entrepreneur who wants to get his, uh, his hands dirty and just grind it up. And sure, he doesn't know much about the capital markets because he worked for a big company, but they're willing to, to listen, they're willing to learn, and they're willing to do what needs to be done to... Uh, to make a successful company. So let's talk about the inverse to that. What are the kind of people you do not want to be backing and that people at home uh, listening to this should be cognizant of when they're thinking about putting money into a company that they've read about or heard about? Yeah. You know, uh, who don't I want to back? I don't back. I don't back a lot of people. Um, yeah. There's a lot of sketchy people out there and they're just, uh, you, you know, the routine they've got a, they've got a property retread that's been, you know, uh, it's been promoted in six previous uh, mining cycles and they're just slick, they're smooth, they're flashy, they use companies' money to create a lifestyle for themselves. And um, I would not back these people in one million years because uh, they, they never never amounts to anything. They're too busy uh, traveling around with their, uh, with their IR person and um, spending companies' money going to Europe, all the gold shows, and they really haven't got anything of substance. And uh, there's a lot of that going on, lifestyle companies. Um, you know, 
that you have to be <clears throat> very careful. And, and I find that uh, there's a culture that, you know, especially in Vancouver, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there's, there's some really sharp people in Vancouver that I back next gens in Vancouver. Um, and then also colonial coals in Vancouver, some very, very good companies in Vancouver, but I just find the whole, the whole sleazy stock promoter, um, mentality is very prevalent in Vancouver and you have to dodge all those bullets and just be very careful about what you're being told and what's really going on because there's a lot of sketchy activity going on there. You know, something I have thought about quite a bit with this is, you know, how much of this do you think in these scams and these, uh, this corruption that happens in the mining space is actual malice on the part of the management team involved and how much of it is, you know, just purely incompetence that people don't know what they're doing or they've sold something that they're un- totally unable to deliver on. Yeah, I think, um, maybe I'm not as, uh, maybe a little more skeptical than most people, but I think what happens here is you're, you'll see this the next time we get a gold market, if we get gold 1500, you'll see it again. Um, basically there's people looking for a, for a quick buck. There's nothing like running a junior and just doing a $10 million raise and going, wow, you know, we got a gravy train here for quite a number of years where I'll be collecting my 300, 400,000 a year salary. I'll be able to go traveling Europe and, uh, Europe and the U S on these and enjoy really nice dinners. Um, in fact, I remember one instance where I had this one clown's wife, uh, told a friend of mine that, you know, that she was really excited that uh, her husband got a job at this company because she wants to get back on the, uh, back on the gravy train and travel the world and eat ex- stay at expensive hotels and have expensive dinners. <laughs> you know, so in, in a lot of these instances, they're, they're right from the very, very beginning. There is not a hope you'll ever find that you'll ever make money. And it's, it's, it's orchestrated right from the beginning to be a lifestyle company. So how do you respond when you've, you find you've been caught in a scam? So if you went, you entered a position with, with an idea in mind or a perception of the people involved and that changes, uh, and you know, not only are they not making the discovery or building the asset or whatever it is they promise to do, but they are actively acting against the best interests of the investor. How do you, how do you respond to something like that? Well, I can give you one example. I was, uh, I was pitched a deal really, really hard, but the call went something like this. Um, it was from a very reputable uh, large brokerage firm that I have a long standing relationship with. And I got a call from their very senior person there who says, Warren, you know, I never call you about deals, but man, there's this one deal I think you got to get involved in. And um, so I I listened to the, listened to the deal. I thought it was reasonable. I put some money into it. I was going to, sit tight and watch it. And then as part of as I was doing my due diligence, I found out that the entire sales team at this brokerage firm had received seed stock in this company at, uh, at one or two cents. And I forget what they were doing the deal at. It might've been 25, 50 cents or whatever. So I knew exactly why I got the call. So um, I immediately pummeled the stock with every single share I had and destroyed the market in the stock and the stock never recovered and went bankrupt. So <laughs> um, I'm not saying I'm vindictive, but, uh, you'd better not lie to me or I'll crush you if I can. And in that instance, I crushed the company. Um, and, uh, 
So all that effort was wasted just because people tried to pull a few dishonest moves on me. So I try for strong, strong retribution when I can. Um, I had other people who were saying bad things about um, companies I was involved in, and I knew that they were obviously wrong because I was involved in the companies. I knew for a fact that, uh, uh, you know, we were onto something. For instance, um, uh, there was a, an individual out there poo-pooing uh, NextGen, calling it a scam. So I think today, I think it's fair to say that everybody knows it's a tremendous discovery. Uh, but there were people saying it was a scam because they were running other uranium companies. So, and in every meeting, they were they were saying bad things about NextGen. So obviously, I had to do whatever I could to uh, uh, crush them and destroy their reputation and make it clear to what all the shortcomings of their project to everybody else. In fact, their project they had will, will never see the light of day. Uh, so you run into that. And I think what happens is the more people realize that I, I will come back at them and there is, there is a consequences for lying to me or trying to steal from me that uh, I find that uh, those people don't approach me. They go for softer targets. Now, do, do you think there's a lack of that in the mining industry? Because it seems to me that, people are more likely to collude than to compete in mining. Uh, you know, you're known uh, for taking a very vocal role uh, in the investments that you, you, you participate in either positively or at times uh, negatively, if you feel like they're not performing the way you would hope them to perform. Do you think that that's something that we're lacking from big shareholders that are willing to, call out these companies when something is going wrong that are willing to put, put their reputation on the line to, you know, def, to defend the other smaller shareholders that can't, that can't do them themselves. Yeah. Well, I just, you know, I did that with next gen. I defended against the tax of next gen. Right. And I tried to get the truth out there. Uh, but that was really what brought me out into the public a little bit more than uh, I normally would be because what was being done to next gen was uh, truly, uh, uh, truly diabolical and it was done by a total scumball. So uh, prior to that, I generally try and stay in the shadows um, and not get super involved. Uh, but, um, and right now uh, we're obviously, uh, I'm, I'm out a little bit on my Twitter account talking about some nasty stuff going on by um, Corners, uh, sorry, Saul Gold had made a, a nasty takeover bid of uh, Cornerstone. It was a hostile takeover bid by a guy named Nick Mather and I'm not too happy with Nick, and I'm not too happy the way he operates. So I'm I'm out there a little bit. The issue you have for somebody, let's say you're you're uh, you know you've been in the business for maybe you know five ten years, and you're working at a big fund company. You don't have the level of flexibility I have in going after somebody, whether it be with Twitter, with uh, or any of the chat boards to, to call people out on the, the lies and the deceit, and. Um, they just don't have that level of flexibility. And I don't think a lot of it wants to be, wants to come back to some of these big funds, which are generally reasonably conservative. And uh, so they just don't have the flexibility I have. And uh, my boss is myself. Uh, I get fired from my clients if I don't make the money. So my main focus is to, is to make money for my clients. Whereas uh, when you're working for some of these big funds, uh, they have some other mandates of just sort of keeping the reputation of the firm as, you know, a good solid reputation, not getting into fights and not causing trouble and not creating too many waves. So they're, 
they're more uh, passive. And what I find when, when the, the bigger funds, when they have a problem with a company, they just quietly sell and they move on. And uh, we're, I have a little bit more flexibility with what I could say and I could be considerably more frank than they can be. You guys have been around for 20 years this year. You've had a 13.67% average uh, annual rate of return. Um, I think I read that if someone had invested with you at the beginning of Rosso, they would have made 13 times their money by now. Your LPs, your investors must be pretty happy with this performance. And I presume that they like your style, the people that have stuck around with you for the last 20 years or, or in that time frame. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I've made them some money uh, on the, on the performance front. I'm not super duper happy with uh, 13 and change percent net of fees uh, for a lot of years. It was north of 20, but we are down again at the bottom of the resource cycle here. So we have the chance to make an absolute fortune here uh, over the next number of years. If we do get a resource cycle, which I believe we have a decent shot of doing that. So, yeah. And what's, what's unique about me and the way I've structured my fund where there, and part of the reason I'm still here today where others have, uh, blowing themselves up is I have a very stable and loyal unit holder base. And part of the reason for that is um, when I worked at Deutsche Bank, I always felt vulnerable because I only had one person's capital I was running and that was basically the banks. So if I had, if I had the president of Deutsche Bank Canada tell me that, that they were pulling the, pulling the funds from me, that was game over. So I, but now I have well over about 130 investors. So I need to piss a lot of people off before I get fired. So that's a definite strength. And I've always tried to create a good, solid, diversified investor base. The other thing I've done with my investors, because I've been around for so long and we've made so many times their money, I encouraged all of them to take their original capital back in the early days. So that gives me a fair amount of flexibility in that I'm running their, the profits that I've made for them. So when times were tough over the, the most recent sell-off in the mining sector, there were uh, there were a number of guys who stuck with me through thick and thin, and they've been rewarded here with some of the money we've made in the last few years. So uh, it's important to have a good stable uh, investor base, and and I have probably more stable than most people, and that allows me to to take a bit more risk and be a bit more outspoken and, and step on a few more toes than I think I would otherwise do. You know, and I I think you've probably also in doing so tapped into this frustrated uh, zeitgeist in the industry. I mean, we did a bit of a, I did a talk at a recent conference and it was called how you got screwed in 2018. Uh, and there were a few hundred people there, but then it went, someone put it on YouTube and it got watched thousands and thousands of times. And I got dozens and dozens of emails about it. And I didn't realize that, that this was something that was frustrating so many people. Um, everything from retail investors to fund managers about the lack of transparency, about the unwillingness of people to talk up. To, they, they felt like the industry insiders were colluding on what was happening within the industry. And it was very hard for someone who wasn't you know, here in Vancouver or very well connected to actually understand what was going on and how these companies were being structured and the tricks they were playing so that they won no matter what. And so many shareholders lost. And I think you're probably tapping into that same uh, frustration with the investor audience. Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've said this before. Part of the reason I'm, I'm a little more outspoken than most people is uh, I had somebody who is rather opinionated and outspoken and obnoxious, saved my ass once. So um, 
he saved my ass by, by being outspoken, saying things how they really were. His, the guy's name was Dale Hendrick. And he came out and he uh, told me all about Briex, in his opinion, uh, what was happening. And without people like that coming clean and telling people, uh, you know, the straight goods, he saved my ass because I'll tell you, uh, I don't know where I'd be without him opening my eyes to some of the, the scams that were going on and some of the tricks Briex was using. And that opened a whole new world for me. And uh, he was very, very helpful. So I'm hoping in some small degree that I'm able to return that favor to other people and just have them open their eyes. And um, one of the biggest things I find when I speak with retail investors is their level of confidence is absolutely incredible. Like, the, you know, you've got a guy who might be a professional engineer or a doctor or a dentist or whatever, and they talk to me as if with 100% certainty that they know exactly what's going on with a certain company. And their level of uh, uh, the level of confidence just uh, floors me. So to the, to the extent that I could encourage people that, you know, they may not know everything after a six-month uh, experience in the market, uh, I can assure you I've been in this business since 1986. It's 33 years. And I'm learning tricks every day. And, you know, I do not have anywhere near the level of confidence I've seen out of some investors that have been investing in the mining sector for six months. So, Would you say that even with many of your longer term investments, that you have a tendency to go back and second guess them and to reevaluate continuously and to I maybe question the assumptions that you made as, as new data becomes available? Yeah, that's a great discipline to have. You have to do that. You just cannot, you cannot sit, sit complacent. And um, for instance, I've got an investment in Cornerstone and, you know, I just have to continually monitor what's going on in Ecuador because, you know, politics in South American countries can change and sometimes very, very quickly. When I'm uh, looking at my next gen investment, I need to continually review uh, the situation of uh, the spot price of uranium and where it is, because no matter how good your next gen is, if we end up in a uranium bear market and it drops from 30 bucks to six bucks in the price of spot uranium, you know, that's going to have a massive impact on my situation, even though I love the, love the product deposit, love the management team. I love the jurisdiction. Um, I'm always re uh, reevaluating things and you have to, and in past I've, I've taken positions I've loved and I've blown them entirely out just because of a change unrelated to the core fundamentals. For instance, uh, I used to own uh, Gold Quest, and uh, I eventually realized that the government of the Dominican Republic is not on our side. It's not going to allow for the development of this project. So little by little, as I got increasingly uncomfortable with their desire to have a gold mine in their country, I, I moved out of my position. So you know, you have to continually evaluate even the ones that you, even the kids that you love, you know, is it, is, do you find that really hard to sort of kill your babies on this one? Because I, I think that separates you from a lot of people in that you see someone that has this, I guess, I guess you'd call it commitment bias that they start in something and it seemed like a good, it maybe genuinely seemed like a good idea at the time. And they're unable to reevaluate that position going forward. And I've seen it happen to really, really smart people, really capable people. You know, I've seen that happen. The worst example I've seen is uh, I had a friend who had a, 
the largest individual position in Briex. And despite all the evidence I was able to put forth in front of him as to why it was a scam and why he should take money off the table, he never did. And his stubbornness and his confidence um, ended up being, uh, it was his, his strength in the early days of Briex because he was able to pick up a ton of stock rather confidently at very, very cheap prices. And he eventually ended up owning personally about $80 million worth of the stock. But when things started happening that didn't match with his original thesis, he just stubbornly stuck it out. And I watched him vaporize his life. And um, so I, I've seen it firsthand. That's, that's the most extreme example. And uh, you've always got to be open to new ideas and open to reassessing your position because uh, stubbornness may work once or twice but at the end of the day it's uh, you've, you've got to base your base your investments and whether you hold them on uh, what's you know on, on facts and what's going on in the market and you have to be open-minded uh, you have to keep that open mind is there any bad advice that you routinely hear to investors um, this could be from the promoters or letter writers in the industry. This could be from other professional investors or fund managers that, you know, that you keep hearing given or a mentality that you see that you fundamentally disagree with. Oh yeah. There's lots of stupid things going on. Lots. There's so many, I can't even start. My favorite is when I get a guy in my office and he tells me, Oh, you know, Warren, it's a great company. It's a really, we got a super tight shell. <laughs> I go, why are you telling me this they go what basically is super tight shell means is there's no liquidity and you guys can ramp the stock up as much as you want and uh, that means i can't buy and i can't sell in the market so and that means it's probably even today it's overpriced so why would i want to invest in overpriced stock that's controlled by insiders it has no liquidity that i could trade in and out of that's one of the stupid things I hear. The other ones I hear, and the stupidest thing I hear is management. And I've saved a few of them from, from certain death as a result of me pounding into their heads a few nuances. I remember one instance, I'll give you a, without the name of, of a dope I know who, uh, who ran a successful company and had a big success, a uh, big discovery. I was part of it. I backed them from the early days. I think I got in like 25 and 50 cents. <clears throat> I was the biggest shareholder at the time. <coughs> Stock was at 11 bucks. And um, I said, uh, you know, you need some money. Uh, your money's over. The fact that you need money is overhanging the stock. So I'll give you a lead order on the deal. Uh, I'll, on a, I'll do $11 lead order. And the guy goes, we're not raising money at 11. We're raising it at 12. Whenever I, whenever I hear that from a management team, I, I try and convince them otherwise. And if they don't, I sell all my stock because in this instance, of course, it never hits $12. It went down to, I think, $4 before because if everybody knows they're raising money at 12 and never gets to 12 and people start, anyways, whatever. So in that instance, what the guy didn't know, and this is maybe it's because I have a math background. I just work out the math. I go, what's the difference in when you're raising a certain amount of capital, whether you raise it $11 or $12, it just, it has virtually no impact on your share dilution. So, but mm -hmm. they're, 
<laughs> they're just following this mantra of no dilution, no dilution, no dilution. I'll give you another example. I had a, a buddy of mine, his stock was at $4 a share. And I, I didn't own any shares in the company. I just sort of provided him my, my two cents worth because he asked me for it. Uh, he was, he uh, had the stock pounded down from $4 to $3.75. And then he was pitched a deal at $3.50 by a big dealer. And he was really irate with these people and saying, you know, I can't believe they jammed down my stock and I can't, I'm not going to take this deal. And I said, dude, just said, work out the math between 375 and 350. Okay. And it has the amount of money you're raising as a infinitesimally small impact on your, on your dilution. Uh, yeah, it might hurt your ego a little bit, but take the money. The money's there, take it. And he reluctantly took the money. I don't know where the stock stopped next, but it, the stock was down to the 250, two buck range before you knew it. The mining sector turned over and nobody was getting financed. So I, I, I reproached him later on. I said, well, where are you? Uh, where are you these days? He said, well, man, I'm super glad we, uh, we took that cash because we'd be destitute without it because the markets just closed down the financings for, for companies like, like ours. So had he not taken that money, he would have been completely destroyed. So I also see management doing that type of stupid stuff. So when I hear, oh, we won't do a deal is too dilutive or we won't raise money here because we're going to wait till it's higher. Uh, you got to invest in us because we have a tight shell, like just typical stupid stuff that I hear all the time. And it, it makes me quite concerned. Um, it's, uh, it's funny you say that because I think everybody who's been around this business for a while knows of an example where a company got offered some massive bot deal at some sort of premium that wasn't what they wanted and they turned it down and then they were screwed, uh, be it months or years later. I don't, I, I personally have never heard of a story of someone taking that money and then regretting it. Oh, one of the best examples I've got is not in the mining business, but the reason, uh, Research in Motion was so successful during the following the dot-com bust in the early 2000s was because they took a billion dollars in cash. So while the whole NASDAQ market was imploding, they had a billion dollars and they were judiciously spending it and they were able to get the lead uh, in the, the smartphone business. And uh, for any junior who's able to raise a pile of money uh, prior to a collapse in the market, can you imagine you're a cashed up junior in a market that's destitute with all your fellow junior mining companies all looking for cash? The amount of deals you could do with money in your pocket are incredible. And that's what people sometimes forget. And uh, so my view on it generally raising money is raise the money if it's being shown to you. Because one of two things will happen. Either the market will go up, which will be great for you, or the market will go down which will make you, make, sure, make you happy that you took the money. So <laughs> under, under either scenario, take the stupid money. And if it res, results in a little bit of a dilution, who cares? And these guys who are so fixated on, I'll raise money at $1.50, but I won't raise money at $1.35. Those, those clowns make me laugh too, because I've seen so many countries, companies vaporize themselves. And uh, I could give you another example. This is funny as hell. <laughs> I gave a lead order to a junior fairly recently um, and it was a substantial amount of money. And then uh, apparently some of the other big shareholders 
didn't like the fact that I got this deal done. And the, pre the president phones me up and says, well, we want to cut you back. He said, um, you've already, well, not only did I give you the amount of money I wanted to give you, and I also wanted to, and I, uh, I said, you can't cut me back. I gave you the lead order, so you can't cut back a lead order, and it's never been done before, and you've already confirmed my fill. So why don't you just increase the size of the deal to include all these other investors? He said, no, no, the board doesn't want to increase the size of the deal because the board's worried about dilution, right? So at this point, I realize I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to a complete dummy. So anyways, he phones me back because I refused to let anybody else in. So he basically reneged on it, on the deal, which is the first time it's ever happened in my career in 30 years. So he just cut me out of the deal totally, and they raised money with all his friends and family and all his buddies who wanted in on the deal. And I got shut out of it totally. Well, sure enough, the next drill season, they drilled a bunch of dusters. And sure enough, <laughs> stocks dropped from, I think, 20 cents down to 4 cents. And, and um, another perfect example where, you know, had they taken my money and the money of all their insider clown buddies – they would have had enough money for another drill season. They wouldn't be where they are today, which is destitute with no capital. And of course I'm really pissed off with them, but uh, they're in a bit of a pickle now. And uh, it's because the idiots on the board were all concerned about this dilution. And now they just totally vaporized the company. So good luck to them. And now that's a, that's a bullet dodged for you, obviously. Um, how do you, you know, this is something that I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about and I've asked other people about is so much of mining and so much of exploration does come down to luck. Uh, and a lot of even best laid plans on prospective properties with great management teams turn out to not be what you'd hoped it to be or, or thought it to be. From an investment risk management perspective, how do you, how do you control for luck and how do you factor that in to your decision-making process process, both in terms of exposure to serendipity and good luck and controlling the downside of bad luck? Well, there's two things that, you know, that I, I think are important. One is you got to have enough cash and you got to have some good backers, right? So if you have a bad drill season or two, if you have enough cash, you're good to go for drill season three, right? Mm -hmm. And the number of companies, for instance, uh, the FDN discovery uh, in Ecuador um, they were down their last couple drill holes, right? There were people on the board pressing to pull out of Ecuador, right? And they were, they were on fumes. And uh, so, you know, sometimes, and there's more often than not, you know, it's the last few drill holes when these guys are on fumes that really make the discovery because it, it takes often, often takes way longer than you expect. So the first thing is you got to make sure you've got guys who wisely spend the money. They're not out there traveling to Europe on expense accounts, staying at expensive hotels and eating wonderful meals. You need guys who put the money to work and make sure they raise the money, put it to work as smart as they can. And then if they find that they're not getting the results they want, they're the first to, to, to cut the property and get on to something else. And they, they're not married to a property, just like in our business, we can't be married to an investment. So those are the guys I love to back, the guys that will make sure that they're cashed up. They make sure that they will spend the absolute minimum amount of money to condemn the property. And once it's condemned, they'll drive on. Because those are the guys I'll actually believe when they come to me and say, Warren, listen, 
we're really onto something here. We're just running low on cash. We need to do another financing. Are you there? And I said, well, yeah, I'll give you an extra 250,000 bucks. Let's pony out this and pass the hat amongst the big investors. And we'll, we'll give you enough dough for the, for the next drill season, because these are the guys who are have enough discipline and self-confidence to walk from a property when they're not getting what they expect yet they have enough faith in what they're doing and their geological common sense and logic and experience that they know when they're on the verge of something. And I remember speaking with the geologist from FDN and he was desperately pleading with me for money just to drill a few more holes. And fortunately they got the money and they drilled it and And uh, it was a tremendous success story, but those are some of the things that, uh, you know, I look for. Okay. Now we're coming up on an hour here, so I want to be respectful of your time. But before we go, I wanted to ask you is, do you see anything shifting in the world today um, that will impact the mining and energy industries meaningfully? Are there sort of any global changes that you look at that gets you excited about the industry or perhaps uh, not excited and, and cautious? Yeah, well, I'm involved both in oil and gas and mining. So uh, uh, it kind of excites me for mining and not for oil and gas because, uh, you know, <clears throat> the, world, uh, the world really has to go to electrification. Cities are just too polluted. Forget about the whole global warming thing. That's not why I've invested, why I'm excited about electrical vehicles. Just go to any city in China. You know we got to go electric. It's just polluting the cities too much. So there's a big trend in electricity. And what's going to be exciting for the mining business is we're going to need a lot of copper. And you know, you could I'm not one to be specifically excited about cobalt or anything like that, because cobalt from the DRC, it's just too risky politically. we got to find a substitute for cobalt if we're going to continue to use it in our batteries. So I'm not one of those guys who bought into any of that cobalt nonsense. The, the battery technology is evolving. It has to evolve. It has to get better. So we don't really know what, what components are going to be in the battery technology. So I'm not one to jump on lithium. I'm, there's tons of lithium anyways, but I'm not the one to jump on cobalt. But one thing we do need for sure is we need copper. There's no replacement for copper, really. We need, and, and over time, once we figure out the battery technologies, we'll know which, which metals we'll end up needing for the, the new long-life batteries. So it's a very exciting times. And what's interesting, too, is I, I got to think that the environmental uh, environmentalists that are fighting against these new copper projects will lighten up a bit, saying, well, it's a trade-off here. We're going to electrify the world. We're going to clean up our air, reduce global warming if they still believe in that, reduce air pollution in the cities, improve people's health in the cities because they're not breathing in polluted air. So maybe they'll just lighten up a little bit on some of these copper projects and saying, well, listen, copper actually does help help the environment here. And maybe we should just lighten up uh, on some of our uh, protests with some of these copper projects that are being built in the middle of nowhere, away from everybody, not not causing really any environmental issues. And why are we protesting and wasting your time doing this? Because it's, it's harming the cause of electrification of vehicles around the world. So I'm excited about mining, less so about oil and gas. How much of um, this demand is going to be, do you think, driven by Asia, uh, particularly China, of course? And then how much... How much do you think China and, and Asia is going to be playing a role in the future in terms of funding, exploration, development, and mining companies? Well, I think I think China is going to be a big driver. All you have to do is spend some time in Beijing or Shanghai. You gotta 
the, the people in China that I talk to, they're just, it's great, great for them to have economic growth and to, to, to make money. But if you just step outside your office and you choke on the fumes of the area there, it's, it's going to happen. Right. So China and China has the ability to do things way quicker than we can here in North America. So I see China as being a leader in electrical vehicles and electrification. They're also a leader too. in. uh, in nuclear energy, that's nuclear energy is the only non-CO2 generating baseload power there is next to, to, to uh, damming up all our rivers, and we've dammed up all our rivers. So there's some tremendous new technologies in nuclear, which will power the, the whole new electrical revolution, and China is just driving forward with that. And um, so there's some really exciting stuff happening in China, whereas in you know North America, you know, you still have these the battle between coal companies and, uh, you know, coal companies lobbying against building nuclear power plants. Like the coal lobby is real and is true in North America. You're seeing with Trump's reversal on coal, we shouldn't be burning coal anywhere in North America. It's obvious to me. It's, we shouldn't be burning natural gas. And, you know, the future is clear. It's nuclear, but we're just quite not there here in North America, despite being as smart as we claim we are. And the Chinese have figured it out. They're building nukes like crazy. And there's a new generation nukes that are fail-safe and modular. So it's a really exciting time in China, in my opinion. Okay. Um, before we go, do you have any advice um, for investors at home? You know, you mentioned earlier that you often see this overconfidence between sort of rookie investors. Is there a way that people can improve their decision-making or just broaden their understanding of the industry. This can be sort of reading or courses or talking to people. Is there, is there anything you think that the average person can do to build themselves into a better mining investor? Well, the key is to work hard, but the best way to learn is through making mistakes. I made a ton of mistakes in my career. So you're going to get, you're going to make mistakes as a, as a young investor the problem with overconfidence is some people mortgage your house to do that. So the important thing for investors is to, is just to tone down the confidence level a bit on themselves, realize they're in the early stages of the career. They're going to take a long approach to it. They're going to have to get out there, put some money to work, lose some money on some of these scams, figure out who's scamming them, who isn't be lied to learn and learn one, what it's like to be lied to learn what it's like to be taken advantage of. But so long as you're doing it with amounts of money, that you could afford to lose, you're going to be fine. What concerns me most are these guys with six months, three months, a year, two years experience, who are mortgaging their house on the next big discovery. And that is not what you do. Use a prudent amount of capital. It's, you're going to be learning throughout your career. But if you, if you start mortgaging your house and taking big bets, thinking making money in mining stocks is, is, uh, is an overnight thing. It's not an overnight thing. It takes you years and years and years of learning a lot of hard lessons before you'll be able to really make the big wins. Uh, sometimes the, the worst thing that could happen to a, a new investor is to have a big win right out of the bat. That's sometimes where this overconfidence comes from. So then next thing you know, you're all gassed up. You think it's a great idea to mortgage your house and your grandmother's house. And the next one, you just get laid right out and you lose everything. So you're going to make mistakes. You're going to lose money. You're going to get taken advantage of. You're going to be lied to. If you do it with an amount of money that's prudent, you're going to learn a lot of lessons that will make you a better investor, not only in the mining business, but in other sectors too. So um, if you do a prudent amount of money um, over time, you're going to, you're going to do fine. 
All right, Warren, I think we're, we're not going to find a better place to end it than that. So thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today. Oh, it was really nice chatting with you, Jamie. You take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.